Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Grateful for you guys being here. Um, really excited to preach this morning. Uh, and I do feel God uh, has a specific word for our church. So if you have a Bible, go to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we are in a series called Becoming Fully Alive, if you're new with us. We are looking at um, when Jesus was asked by a, a teacher of the law in Matthew, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response was a combination of two verses, Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18. And so the question is, okay, um, there was a practice in rabbinic culture which was to uh, uh, condense the law. There were over 630, uh, 613 laws in the Old Testament, 613 commandments and laws that the Jewish community would live around and by. And when they were asked by a teacher, they're wanting to know, how do you fulfill all these commands? Like, if you can condense the 613 laws to fewer and fewer precepts, uh, what would it be? And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And he adds Leviticus 19.18, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So his response to summarize the 613 commands is the way you fulfill all the Hebrew laws and the laws of the prophets is this. Love God, love others and love yourself. Love God and love others as yourself. And so this series about becoming fully ourselves or becoming fully alive in God is looking at how to fulfill this commandment. And so or how to fulfill this great teaching of Jesus as an essence of what it means to be a Christian. And I said in the beginning of the intro, um, helping us fr- frame this series is this. I, I think Jesus um, uses this as a way of setting up the rest of his teaching because Our view of God shapes the world we live in. There's a secret to what Jesus is after. Our view of God shapes the way we see the world, the way we interact with each other, and the way we view ourselves. Here are some examples. Just for those of us that are worshiping God, we have often distorted views of this God. Scripture reveals a very... um, controversial God, which I'll describe in a minute. But some of us have grown up thinking that God is all about legalism and he's only concerned with you managing your sin. And so God is all about tasks and lists and following through with this endless spiritual ladder. And so your life, when it's when you have that view of God, is shaped by these, this sin management or following the rules. Or you see the Bible as an instruction man, uh, manual. It's a, uh, a thing that helps you get out of this place so that one day you can go to heaven. Do you know what I'm talking about? So you apply this into your life. It's all about following the rules. Maybe some of you don't struggle with that. Maybe some of you struggle with the American dream God. Or the prosperity gospel or the middle class American God. It's the God that um, wants you to have everything you want. 
seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Your translation is, well, if I just pray in the morning, then everything else will be okay. Whatever I want, however I pray, it's really about a vending machine God where he's not uh, worshiping that God. It's just attaching him as an accessory to your dreams, to your job, to your hopes for life, to your family, which occupies most of your entire existence, to your education, to whatever it is that really you, whatever it is that you value most in life. Do you, do any of us struggle with that God? Okay. I'm the only one again. Thank you, Chad. I just called you out. Chad struggles with that. Let's keep it anonymous. Sorry about that. Some of you worship, or maybe, you know, we can get even, that's the obvious one. Maybe, I mean, maybe, yes, I don't worship that. I have reoriented my life around this God and I, I try to live on mission. But maybe what you've done is you've worshipped the disapproving father God. This is what I've struggled with. That somehow you've experienced a life that's about um, needing to seek the approval of others. And this is a linear, our relationships here on earth, maybe with your dad or maybe with your friends or, or whatever it is. And you've applied that to your hor- uh, vertical relationship with God. And so when you think about being a Christian or being a good Christian, life is about um, doing more and more and more for God. So it's not just read the Bible in a year. It's read the Bible in 90 days and every 90 days. Because somehow you get spiritual points and maybe one day God will say, yes, you are my beloved son with you. I'm well pleased. Maybe deep down inside you have an insecurity about whether or not God loves you or that he's happy or pleased with you. That you go on serving the homeless, living with the poor out of this place of brokenness, out of this distorted view of God. You just continue to continue to live your life um, just driven by the need to experience acceptance. Do any of us struggle with that? And so this, the point of this series is to first, we did the first half was to describe what God is like. Because the more we understand God shapes the world we live in, the, and the more we understand what type of God we're talking about. We're talking about the God of scriptures and how scripture reveals this benevolent, loving, intimate, passionate, jealous God who has already, for those of us that are in Christ, accepted you as you are. If you have that understanding, then... Only then can we operate in this place where we learn how to love others as we love ourselves. You with me? And that's what we're on. So we're on this other section. And this morning I want to talk about what does it mean for us to continue on a regular basis to love ourselves? Not in a narcissistic way, but in a true self-awareness of what God thinks of us. Are you with me? All right, Genesis chapter 1, you are already there. Bill talked about this a little bit last week. I want to take it in another direction. So if you have the Bible, just open it to the first page. I hope it's page 1 for you. Genesis 1, 1. Um, That's not going to be up here. We'll get to this in just a moment. I just want to give us a picture of what... what happened before there was sin and give you the narrative of what creation was like. So here we read in in the beginning, verse 1. God create uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the creations over the waters. Excuse me. Verse three. God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
and skip down. There was evening, there was morning, first day. Then God separated the water from waters, um, it says, and he called uh, the first thing sky. And then there was evening and there was morning. The second day, verse nine, I'm just going to speed through this. Then he's, uh, he said, let the water under the sky be gathered at one place and let dry ground appear and let the land, verse 11, produce vegetation, seed bearing plants. It was evening and morning, verse 13, the third day, verse 14, let the lights in the vault of the sky separate the day from the night. So he creates the sun, the moon and the stars. And it was evening and it was morning. It was the fourth day. And God said, let the water team with living creatures, birds, fish um, be fruitful and increase in number. And there was evening and there was morning. It was the fifth day. And then we get to the sixth day. Verse 24, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creatures that move along the ground. Um, and God made the wild animals and the livestock according to their kind and saw that it was good. Okay, so there are six days of creation according to the Genesis 1 account. There are two creation stories in Genesis. Do we know this? Genesis 1 is one creation story and Genesis 2 is another creation story. We're going to look at Genesis 2 next week. Genesis 1 has incredible implications for us. Genesis 1 begins with as a poem in Hebrew. It's a, it's a rhythmic poem. And what you see happening in this poem is that, number one, God creates the heavens and the earth. Are you with me? We can agree upon that. The second part is this, uh, this rhythmic poem of the days. So evening and morning, first day, evening, morning, second day. And each day, if you follow the sequence, the six of the six days gets more and more complicated. It starts with day one. It's kind of nebulous, uh, light and darkness. Um, then it's land and um, or then it's the uh, earth. I'm sorry, skies and water. Then it's land and the sky and water. And then it's vegetation that seeds are producing of its kind. Then it's complicated animals like birds and fish. And then it's even more complicated animals like cattle, cats and dogs. Or whatever it is that you enjoy. Goldfish are way back then. So the sixth day. And then there's a pause. And let's look at verse 26. And there is a dialogue in the heavenly realms. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. Circle image and likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27. If you want to punctuate the, the emphasis. If, if you want to emphasize something in the Hebrew scripture. Um, you would repeat it. He says this. So God created mankind in his own image. Who did he create in his image? What is mankind? Male and female. He created humanity in his image together. In the image of God he created them. Just so you. If, in case you forgot. He created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Circle subdue. Rule. Circle that. Over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So Genesis 1 reveals how we come about as humans. And so it begins as as it gets more and more complicated each day. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation. God makes humanity in his image and in his likeness. Now, image and likeness are very similar words in the ancient text. In fact, 
Here's what's fascinating about those two words. In the ancient Near East civilizations, those phrases were used millennials ago, millenniums ago, um, to describe monarchs and kings. If you if you picked up an old an ancient text in Mesopotamia, you would find that they called their kings. Their kings were images of the Shamash God or their 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 statues of those gods were the likeness, the phrase, the likeness of that particular God, Baal or whatever it was. So in the text that we're reading, which comes from um, remember an ancient civilization, the Jewish community, they're reflecting about what God did in creation. We, we have to understand that what's going on in that ancient Near East culture to be called the image or likeness of God is to be called royalty or divine. So where other civilizations distinguish kings as the image of gods. And then there's everyone else. The Hebrew scriptures define all of humanity as made in the image and likeness of God. So we are all royal or divine. This has drastic and dramatic implications for what it means for us to be humans. So uh, humanity is made in the image of God. Um, the idea of likeness, I said there were coins of different um, Gods, there were statues. And uh, when you saw a statue of an ancient Mesopotamian god in Mesopotamia, you would uh, say that is the likeness of that god. That symbol or likeness, that image was designed to represent that god in that particular territory. So as we read of this Genesis narrative, as we begin to understand what it is God was doing in this, this, this story... We have to recognize that our very existence bears witness to God's activity on earth. Our very existence as humans bears witness to God's activity on earth. The implication of being made in the image and likeness of God. Um, and remember, God will not allow images to be made of him, right? Later on in Exodus, do we know the story? Why? Because we are the image and likeness of God. So our very existence as humans from the creation account implies two things. We first derive our identity from what God says about us out of who we are before we can do anything. We are made. We are valued. We are worth something in the image of God. Are you with me? So before you can do anything, according to the Genesis narrative, you have value and worth. Cool. <laughs> Some of you are like, okay. Now, so in this Genesis narrative, so first is identity. Second, um, stay here. Um, it, we get our purpose, or you could say we get a calling from a universal calling from Genesis chapter 28. God says, um, chapter 1, excuse me, verse 28. I, I really want to emphasize this point before we continue. Oh, I lost it. Here we go. Verse 28 says this. God blessed them. So he blessed humanity and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue. The word for subdue is kibosh. And the word for rule over the fish of the sea. The word rule is radah. And the implication of these two words is this. Um, because we're made in the image of God, we're supposed to represent him on earth. God is commissioning humanity. The task of humanity is to partner with God in the care or stewarding of all of creation. 
So our identity is made in the image of God. We are called to represent him on earth. But we are invited from from according to Genesis. We are invited to steward creation on behalf of God in partnership with him. And we are to create environments for all creation to flourish. How cool is that? That is the human mandate. And most of us are human, right? So according to Genesis 1, this is this is the great picture we have. That God creates humanity to live in perfect relationship with him. They are made in the image of God. We are made in his likeness to, to rule over, not to have just power over, but to serve, to care, to cultivate, to steward all of creation. That is our missional task in Genesis chapter 1. Are you with me? Here's a slide that helps us understand. So Genesis 1 and 2 reveals... Uh, a, Everything being put in its right place. See you later, dude. I'm sorry I'm boring you. Um, Go to the next slide for me, Darren. So Genesis 1 and 2 and the famous prophetic word of Radiohead, everything in its right place. What does it look like? Let's look at this. uh, This was a helpful visual for me and I had arrows, but it wouldn't come up. So we have God in the heavenly realms, God creator. He's in the right place. We worship him. Humanity is under that over creation. Okay. So God, humanity, creation. Here's another way to look at it. And I I don't know if this is helpful. This was helpful for me. But when we worship God, we derive our identity, our image and likeness from him. That's who we are. And then from our identity in right place, we work out of our purpose, which is our calling to what? Steward all of creation. And that's the work we do. So it's good when we're working out of our right identity and calling to work with our hands, to do the thing God intended us to do. Some of us love to dig in the ground and the dirt and plant gardens. Some of us love to teach. Some of us love to do things like engineer and business and write plays and all those things. And so when God is in his right place, we form our identity from him. And then he calls us to our purpose and we find our work meaningful. But what happens is this. Go to the next slide. When God is not in that right place, and I'm putting it here metaphorically, at the center of your life, you will find value and worth and identity from whatever it is you worship. So let's pretend for a moment some of us struggle struggle with worshiping money. What do I mean by worship? We find our value, we find our worth, we find security and comfort from how much money we have in the bank. Or how much stuff we've collected along the way. And if you can imagine this looking like arrows going in a circle. If that's what you worship, then you find your identity in how much you have or don't have. And your purpose in work and desire in life is to make more money so that you can feel better. Or you can find your identity. It's just a cycle. And you just go make more. You're never going to make enough. It works for everything. Let's say that you worship beauty. You worship your body. So you get your value based on what people think about your body, how you think about uh, your body, how much, uh, how good you look in the mirror. Uh, And so what you do to get your identity in a better place, you endlessly work to make your body look better, to eat the right diet, to buy the right clothes. And it's just this endless cycle that literally I would call slavery. And you can put anything in that. It doesn't have to be money. It could be your family. And when your family's not pleased with you, what do you do? You endlessly and tirelessly tirelessly work to get their approval and acceptance. And it's a never-ending cycle because one day they're going to be upset again. Do you know what I'm talking about? This This is diagnosing our problem when we worship anything other than God. Uh, There's a writer who passed away in 2008, I believe. 
His name is David Foster Wallace. And I, I'm yet to find out whether or not he's Christian. But he gave a commencement speech, which is quite uh, popular now, called This is Water at Kenyon College. And he writes this. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's all it's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure um, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You will never ever uh, and, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are our default settings. They are our default settings. They are the default setting. I think this is a profound message he says in this, I'm going to explain this in just a second. David Foster goes on in the beginning of his speech and he tells this parable, which um, Bill last week alluded to. He says this, he says, there are these two fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them. Morning boys, how's the water? He says, and the two young fish swim on for a bit. And eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? And his point of the story is this. Merely the most uh, the immediate point of the fish story merely uh, is merely that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and hardest to talk about. When he talks about our default settings, he's talking about the thing underneath the thing underneath the thing underneath the thing that is all driving and compelling us. When he talks about the water, he's describing the water we are all swimming in. He's talking about a culture that we've adopted. I call it this, especially for the church world. We live in a materialistic, consumer-oriented, narcissistic, pleasure-seeking, busy-driven, lazy, technologically distracted, socially disconnected culture. This is the, the water that we're swimming in, whether we recognize it mentally or not. We're living in a culture that says more stuff is better. It's all about you and your priorities, your dreams, your life. It's, it's driven by success. We're busy and lazy at the same time. And most of us hide our laziness through our busyness. We, we have more technology than we know what to do with. One article says this. I found it fascinating. CNN revealed in a new study that there's a new condition condition being uh, that's called checking habits and they're diagnosing a repetitive need to check your phone emails and social media apps on your smartphone and the average person is checking their phone 34 times a day without needing to check it and the millennial generation those that were born from 1980 to 2009 check it up to 150 times a day we're busy we're exhausted we're anxious. Narcissism is being defined as an epidemic. 
The increase of narcissism in our culture in the last 20 or 30 years, I think, has increased as fast as obesity. Two-thirds of college students suffer from narcissistic personality disorder. We live in a culture that is completely challenging what it means to be a Christian. And we go to, and some of our churches are built around these words. We need to have the better power slide or, you know, the PowerPoint. We need to have the videos. Every worship leader needs an iPad. Um, we need to have tweets during our service. Not that there's nothing, anything bad with, the, bad with those things. I'm just curious real quick. How many of you have checked your phone during worship? Let, let's just, let, let's, I checked it. Let's just, let's just, whatever the reason was, phone, raise your hand. Oh, we're really, we can confess our sins so that we may be healed. Just kidding. <laughs> we are completely distracted, broken. And, um, and if you look at this culture, and if you really believe that what the God, uh, our view of God shapes the world we live in, then we're worshiping wealth, ourselves, the pleasure, feeling good. We're swimming in a world of self-focused convenience, social connectedness, but most of all, dysfunction. We are so distracted and we don't even realize it. And this, my friends, dramatically impacts our identity and purpose. Would you agree that when you're going from appointment to appointment, from meeting to meeting, from baseball practice to club practice to swim meet to um, dinner with friends to community group to church to text messaging when stopping at the stoplight? And that's the only time as a mom you can check your phone seriously because it's that busy. Do you really think that you can settle into what it means to be a beloved child of God, freed and liberated from sin because of the work of the cross, called and set apart to live on mission for the redemption and renewal of all things? If we really want to know what it takes to love ourselves in, in view of that identity, I think we have to learn and choose to live differently. And so this morning... All that to get to this point, I believe scripture teaches us how to subverse, subvert these false gods we worship. I think scripture offers us an entirely different way to live a life that is full of freedom, a life that is full of meaning and purpose, a life that is intentionally lived and no longer left on the default settings. But if you want to to live that life, you have to choose it. And I think that we find a secret in scripture that will reveal um, how to push back against this type of culture in our lives. So I want to I talk about the Israelites. Go to Exodus t- chapter 19. I want to teach um, from this story, and I'm really going to land very practically. Um, and I, I know this message was going to go longer, but I didn't want to cut it down because I really felt I needed to teach it. Um, so Exodus 19, here's the story of Israel in a nutshell. They were called, Abraham was selected by God to, be, to basically father a nation. And um, what happens over time is that this nation winds up. They're called the Israelites. I'm going to tell the story this way. And um, in case you didn't know, I like to do this. Um, So they they wind up in Egypt where they become slaves to Egypt. And they're oppressed harshly. And the Israelites were designed to be a nation for God. And uh, they wind up being slaves to this foreign power. And day after day, they are in slavery. And day after day, they are are forced to make bricks, according to the text. Day after day, seven days a week, they work to produce more and more bricks for the nation that they were enslaved to. They cry out to God. God, hear our cries. 
In Exodus, the story begins with God hearing the cries of Israel. And he sends a, a messenger named Moses to free the nation of Israel. And this nation, through a series of, of signs and wonders and miracles, God eventually frees the nation of Israel from the hands of the oppressive Egyptians and brings them to this mountain where he's going to meet with this nation. And he brings these tribe and nation of slaves that had been working day after day for as slaves and slavery is inhumane. I mean, think about this. Being treated like property would dramatically affect the way you see the world. Where your value is based on how much you produce, how much work you get done, how many bricks you make, equals your sense of purpose within that society. And so God frees this nation of slaves. And this is what he says to them. Um, Exodus 19, verse 5. He says, look, guys. Now, just imagine like rough there. Imagine what it would, would have been like to live as slaves, working seven days a week, um, being freed from this oppressive nation. Now brought before this mountain, there's lightning, there's thunder, there's fire on this mountain. God's done all these miracles and they're just a bunch of slaves. And God says, look, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. I mean, really? <laughs> the Egyptians were pretty powerful. There are all sorts of other ancient tribes, not these nomad, desert-wandering slaves. But he says, you guys are going to be my treasured possession. And then he says, he gives them their purpose. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests are mediators. Priests are those set aside to represent God to everyone else and everyone else to God. The entire nation of slaves are going to be priests on behalf of the world. Then he says, you'll be a holy nation. To be holy is to be set apart. And the purpose of being a holy nation is to be set apart and put on display for the rest of the world to see that there is a God. The call for Israel was to live in a way that would reveal God to, the, to earth or to represent God on earth. Does that sound familiar? So if you do this. And so what God then goes on to do is give the commandments. And this is what's really important. So we have um, the Israelites. Now, if you live in a condition where you're seen as property, it's going to affect the way you treat one another. So he gives us commandments. Uh, the later commandments are like, guys, when you're hanging out together, don't kill each other. Uh, don't sleep with each other's wives. Don't steal. But it doesn't start there. It starts with if you're going to form an authentic, intimate human community that will eventually represent me to the world. Here's the list. And go to Exodus chapter 20. He says, look, uh, you guys are set up. <clears throat> Here's what I want to do. Number one, you can't have uh, have no other gods before me. Have no other gods. Worship. Don't, don't worship any other gods. Uh, don't worship false images. In other words, don't worship things like gold and and money and stuff like wood and carvings. And, and, and don't worship cars and chariots or whatever it is they worship back then. Um, stones or bricks. Don't worship that stuff. Don't misuse my name. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Um, it's not just cursing God like Jesus Christ, saying it in a derogatory way. To, to, to take the Lord's name in vain is to not represent God well. So we're talking about this is, this is what it means to be an authentic human community put on display for the world to see. And then the most fascinating command that I want to highlight, which is the secret for us today of where we find our identity, is, is a commandment. In verse 8, it's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 
Six days you shall work, labor, and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, time out. So I get don't worship gods, don't worship, you know, don't worship stuff, don't misrepresent you, but don't work seven days a week. The fourth commandment is to set aside a day. The word Sabbath is to cease. Don't work because your God created the earth in six days and rested. Did he need to rest? No. Was he tired? No. But there's something significant about resting once a week, about setting your calendar in a way that causes you to stop uh, working. He pushes back. Something about the Sabbath is reminding the Israelites that they were created in the image and likeness of God. So according to Exodus... In order for us to fully live, for us to fully live out of a right identity, we have to rest once a week. Because the temptation will be to find our identity in what we do. To find our identity in what we produce. To find our value in how much we make. To find our value in how good we look. And once a week, we don't just stop work that we do that's defined as work and where we get our paycheck. No, we don't do any chores. We don't write a to-do list. We don't do the budgeting. We don't clean dishes. We put aside a day to remind ourselves that we are made in God's image. But that's one commandment and there's another account which i just think is even more fascinating go to deuteronomy chapter five so um, deuteronomy is moses's reflection before the israelites enter into the promised land they're wandered in the wilderness deuteronomy is a reflection on things that were said in the previous books he wrote genesis exodus leviticus and numbers and uh, it's a way of preparing the people of god as they're about to enter in and so if exodus uh the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath commandment is to remember that you are created in the image of God. Remember that you have an identity outside of anything you could possibly do. That's the first thing. Deuteronomy reveals another implication for the Sabbath day. Verse 12, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work. Neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox or donkey or any other animal or any foreigner residing in your towns or your male or female servants. Um, let them rest. So as you do, remember, this is a different meaning. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord, your God, brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord, your God, has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. So in Exodus, we have this picture that when we rest on the Sabbath, we're reminded of our identity. And then in Deuteronomy, God is reminding the people of God that they have been set apart for the purpose of what? Mission. And that if you keep working on and on and on and on, and if you live a life that's busy and frantic and finding your identity and everywhere else, and if you don't rest on the Sabbath, you will forget who you are and what you're here for. How do we love ourselves? 
We take a day a week, and I'm not talking legalistically, and we learn to rest in what God says about us. And to, we're called to cultivate and remind ourselves that we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the purposes of God. So how do we push back against a culture that's narcissistic, that's materialistic, that's consumer-oriented? How do we push back against the false gods in our lives? We rest. Take a day off. Every week. How many of you are hearing this and think that's good news? <laughs> this is such good news. Sabbath was designed to remind the Israelites that they are the image of God and set apart as representatives of God on earth. And that if they were slaves at one point, they needed to be retrained to know who they were and to rest in that. Sabbath is a way of breaking down that old lifestyle. And pushing, pushing back against the false narratives in our lives. They're narratives that say, uh, and, and it's a way of, of disciplining ourselves to say we're not valued based on our, our, the products we produce or the quantity of our relationships. or um, ba- We're not valued based on the quality of the product. Or, um, and we are not worth more if we have more money in our bank or, or a sexier body or a bigger home or a successful career. None of this intrinsically gives us worth, purpose, or value. And Sabbath helps us push back against those things. We are simply what God says we are. And that's what Sabbath is designed for. So in many ways, um, let me do this. I want to give you a couple of thoughts on what Sabbath is. So Sabbath is taking a day off. Go to the next one. Um, Sabbath. So how do we learn to love ourselves well? Well, we learn to first rest in our identity. Rest in the belovedness that you are. Rest of being set apart. Rest in God doing everything he can to love you as you are, not as you should be. Second, we learn from this posture of acceptance to work out of a place of our belovedness. We don't work to earn anything. And I I don't mean just work for God. I mean work in any aspect of our lives. Uh, How many of us are struggling with relationships because we just can't meet that person's expectation of us? When you accept who you are, you just don't care. That's none of their business. Do you know what I'm talking about? Go to the next one. Uh, So Sabbath as a discipline. And some of you are like, well, didn't the law go away? Yes. Um, And we don't have to keep this command. But I want to invite you to to learn to discipline yourself. You can do it any day of the week. Define the the day and learn to practice rhythms of Sabbath or rest. So remember, this is a day set apart to not work. But here's what happens. The Sabbath becomes a discipline then of identity and purpose. I've already said that. Sabbath is a discipline of recalibration. So this is where we put God in in, in our time. We can worship God with our money. We We can worship God with our words, with our works. But we also worship God with our time. This is a way of recalibrating our schedule and life in time. And so when we put God first, Sabbath is declaring that I will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let everything else sort itself out. Yes, there's more stuff to get done, but the point is to recognize it has nothing to do with who you are. Cool? Recalibrating Sabbath is a way of worship, of reordering our priorities. I love this one. Sabbath is a weekly assault against the forces that would make us merely the product of mindless natural selection. Every week we take a Sabbath, we're saying to the false views of God in the world, actually, there is a creator God. And he designed me. Are you with me? 
And Sabbath helps us turn off our default settings and turn on ourselves to what God is up to. Go to the next slide. Do I have another slide? Okay. So here's the real practical stuff. And maybe I'm going to email us out to our community groups. Um, but I want to invite you to Sabbath. I want to invite you to take a day off and to see it as a way to love yourself. Not in a narcissistic way. In a way that helps you form your identity and purpose and calling. Um, so here's what happens Here's, here's how we Sabbath. Um, first of all, we have to eliminate the things that get in the way. Number one. So we have to know ourselves well enough to eliminate ourselves to, to practice this discipline. This is going to be extremely hard. I think Sabbath is harder than fasting. Um, but here's what you do. Don't do any work. Define what your chores are. Try not to buy anything the day of this rest. Have encouraged to say no to obligations. Eliminate any worry in your life. So this is not a day where you're going to do to-dos or planning or budgeting. Eliminate social media. Yeah, it just got, got real. <laughs> Eliminate media as a whole. Don't watch TV. Don't veg out on, on Netflix. Create a day to be rejuvenated. Second thing, prepare for this day of rest. Some of you don't like washing dishes like I don't, but I do it all the time. So on Sabbath, I don't wash dishes. Uh, decide on what you're going to do before, because otherwise you'll fight with your spouse. Not that I know, but maybe I do. <laughs> it's, all, it's always my fault. Um, anyways, she is always right. I, I'm always sorry. Uh, organize tasks before the day. Work six days, including whatever it is you need to get done as a family. And Sabbath is not for you as an individual. It's for you as a family within community. Okay? So we do this together. Go to the next slide. Uh, here's what you do. You fill the day with relaxation. Rest your body. Enjoy a hobby. Take a walk, a bath. Enjoy good food. Married couples, the rabbinic tradition is the first thing you do is make love. All the men said, Amen. <laughs> It's a great way to start a restful day. Um, in the fall, we're doing a series on sex, love, and God. So plenty of more where that came from. Uh, sleep, pray, play, enjoy time with family and meaningful relationships. Worship as life. This isn't just about reading tons of scripture and anxiously getting through a day. It's about learning how to have fun and rest in God. And go take a walk on the beach with God. Go read a psalm and, and give it a rest. And then it's a time for solitude and silence. Uh, if you don't rest, um, you will not be useful for the kingdom. Rest enables you to live on mission. Rest enables healthy relationships. And rest enable, enables you to f- uh, live freely because you can't accomplish everything you want. The reason I'm passionate about this is because I've struggled with this. And I just want to invite some of you to hear from my story. When I got into ministry, I've already shared my deep insecurity of needing to make everyone happy. I live to please everyone. And when you start a church, you deal with a lot of unhappy people. Not, none of you, of course. Um, but when you're dealing with people, you can be hurt, you can hurt. And, you, and if your job, if I, I thought in ministry my job was to, my sole purpose was to make everyone happy, that that was the way I would build a church. And the reality is I can never build a church. Jesus is the one that builds his church. But I lived in this false paradigm and I worshiped the approval of others. 
And so meeting after meeting, appointment after appointment, email after email, I worked 60, 70 hours putting an endless effort to do this thing, to find and only to find my identity in what I was doing, only to find my identity, not as a beloved and accepted Christ follower, son of God. It was to find my identity and making everyone happy. And it left me burnt out. I was sick. I had health problems, I have anxiety. I deal with panic attacks as a result of the early years of my life. I work seven days a week, endlessly, tirelessly, trying to just do everything I could because I thought that's what it meant to be obedient. And especially in church ministry, or at least when you get your paycheck from a church, you think that everything is good. So because they're calling you late, it's okay, it's good. But what I didn't realize is that just because it's good doesn't mean it's obedient to Jesus. Just because someone's hurting doesn't mean I have to give up my day off to take care of them. And I was exhausted. I was burnt out. I have been burnt out. And I became angry. I blamed the garden for my problems in life. I became unchristlike. But worst of all, Jesus became work. Jesus became work. And so I had to learn how to rest outside of him. Only to realize that Jesus is the source of everything. And so I had, that was sin in my life. I had to repent from that false God. And I had to radically reorient my life. I still struggle with it around what God says. And bring my schedule and say, what is important for this week, Jesus? And Sabbath became the discipline for me to rediscover meaning, purpose, and identity. That if any of this fails, it's okay. I'm good enough. I, I can't tell you how hard Sabbath was. When you get to the point where everything you do makes you feel better or worse about yourself, when you don't do anything, you become irritable, frustrated, angry, tired, exhausted, mean. But I had to push through that to experience resurrection. I know so many of you are tired, are burnt out, are exhausted, are putting your identity in everywhere else except Jesus. And you read a passage like this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is for you this morning. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.